0: This podcast is brought to you by JewishPodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at JewishPodcasts.org. 784. Here's the Psukkim that we're going to be dealing with. We've been dealing with a couple sukim around this over the last four or five years. Membav Testvav. It says, "Ela Yakov These are the sons of Leah that were born to Yaakov and Paranarum, as well as Dina, his daughter, the sons and the daughter. Kolnefesh, Bunavuvnosev, Shloshim All of the souls involved, sons and daughters, were 33. Now it's super interesting because the only girl mentioned here, was Dina. Yet at the end, it says, Banibubnos of his sons and his daughters. Aside from that, there are 33 people mentioned in this pasuk. 33 altogether. If you count them all up, there's only 32 so where is that 33rd person the Belzarebba says the point of the beginning of the passage where it says Ela b'nei Leia, Asher Yaakov, is to tell us that even though Leah and Yaakov were in Paden Aram when they gave birth to many of the Shvatim to six of Leah's children seven of Leah's children the six boys as well as Dina and that was an area of Tuma where there was nothing good going on there nevertheless they were able to birth and raise kids that were absolutely kadosh, filled with Kedusha Esav however had had his children in Eretz Canaan. Right with all the kedusha there, the land was filled with kedusha and still did not manage to have children of kedusha at all. There were mamzerim and all the tumah that you can imagine was involved in those people. The ikur is obviously not regarding the places kedusha; it's regarding the person themselves. What kind of a person is it? Yaakov can have beautiful children anywhere, and Esav can have evil children anywhere. That's the concept the Balz Rebbe brings up in the beginning of the parsha. That's why it says b'fada naram in Aram. Now. This is a super interesting Rashi. There are two Rashis in this Pasek. The first one says, and I'm going to try to go through this a little bit quickly. There is more to deal with in this, but I'm going to go through it a little quickly. The sons were called Bnei Leah, while Dina is known as Yaakov's daughter. That's Dina Beto, his daughter, but the boys were Bnei Leah. That teaches us when a woman is Mazra'as first, I'm not going to translate into there, when she's Mazra'as first, a boy will be born. When a man is Mazria first, then a girl will be born. And that's based on a Gemara in Nida Lamed Aleph and Lamed it's a very strange gemara. It's a gemara that we don't fully understand. But that's something that it says right over there. And Rashi quotes it based on this pasuk. This is the Makor for that idea. The Khiskuri says that there is a science behind it, and he says the following: He says that boys are conceived from the zera of the father, and girls are conceived from the zera of the mother. When the mother's zera arrives first, it scatters and is bottle to what comes afterward. That leaves only the zera of the father, which comes last and is intact to form a baby boy. And obviously the opposite is true if the man is Mazria first, etc. Right? That's how the Chizkuni puts it through. The Gurariye, he suggests that the completion and perfection of every man is through a woman, and so too every woman is completed through a man. So by together, that makes an ultimate complete person, and therefore it makes sense that a man will cause a woman to be born, and a woman will cause a man to be born. The opposite of what the Chizkuni was saying. It says, if they are completing themselves when that happens, this could be hinting to the famous Gemara Nida right there that there are three partners in creating a child it's the mother the father as well as the Baruch Hu A Baruch Hu puts the Yud into the, and, and into the Ish and the Hay into the Isha thus you have Ish to Ish and that's the famous word that everybody says at Sheva makes to make sure that the Yud creates a new Hay and the Hay creates a new Yud that's how the Gura puts it he says a little bit more but that's the idea behind it Torah Tamimah also says it must be that Chazal knew that this was true naturally since everything goes after the last koach the last koach that went into it the last strength if the father is masri first that means his father his koach is already gone by the time the mother's there as the chizkuni mentioned before and that's why the child will be female and vice versa but then he adds this is not a real limud from this Pasuk. because as we all know Dina was supposed to be a boy There was a Gemara, whether you want to call it, Gemara Medrash, it depends on how you look at the Gemaras and how you look at the Medrashim, but either way, that Dina and Yosef were switched between Leah and Rachel, which means in actuality, Dina was supposed to be a boy, which meant it would have been through Leah, but it was switched to the tzidkus and the davening, the tzfilus, of either Rachel or Leah, whichever one you want to go with, etc. So that seems to be something unbelievably interesting. Look at the Gemara and Brachos and Daph Samach about this. Therefore, this is a hint to what it is that girls go after boys and boys go after girls right but it's not how it worked out in reality that's super interesting the Balitosas get involved in this question the Rishonan ask this question as well not only here but also in Parshish Tazria toward the very very beginning how can we learn this idea from the Pasek when Dina was supposed to be a male and the answer that she wasn't actually born male but rather the thought that Leah would give birth to one other boy and Rachel would give birth to one other girl through their tefillah that was changed so even before or conception that was true, so it never ended up happening that way. A super interesting answer from the Balitosos, and the Ve'erba started discussed it as well he quotes the Marshan those Gemaras it could have been that they were at the same time that we were giving cases where the man Mazria first or the woman what happens if it's at the same exact time and that's why it could have been either or and that would have been that. for the question of whether the Drush should be here or Parshas Tazria I give you some homework you can look up the Moshev Zakenim the Panim Yavos which is the Hathwa the Mizrahi the Gorari and the Divrei David of the Taz who all answer that question in different ways but everything's like that But let's go into the other part of the pasuk, which I think is one of the more interesting questions over here. The pasuk tells us there were thirty-three sons and daughters, but in the end we count thirty-two. Now, technically, this is true at the end of the whole parsha. Also, it says that there were seventy people when there are actually sixty-nine. Now, you could say at the end that sixty-nine is rounded up to seventy. You could say that Yaakov Avinu was added to make seventy. Over here, that's difficult. When it says there were thirty-three children, sons and daughters of Leah, you can't say that's a roundup. You don't round up to 33. That you don't round up from. If it's 32, you don't round up that way. Number two, if Yaakovino is the extra one over here, that's also a little strange. He's not one of the sons and daughters of Leah. That's a strange thing to say altogether. So Rashi tells us that the one missing is Yochadet, the daughter of Levi and Osah. Osa is the name of Levi's wife, who was born as they entered the gates of the city of Mitzrayim. Her birth was in Egypt. She was conceived outside of Egypt. And this is based on a Gemara in three different places. Twice in Bavavasra, Bavavasra Kufchof Aminalef, Kufchof Gimel, as well as in Sota Yud Aleph. that Yocheved was, in the words of Hebrew, Nolda Beinach Homos, she was born between the walls. That's what happened over there. The rabbin Yoel says that that's why the word Beto is added by the name Dina over here. We obviously know that Dina was a girl, but it adds... That word, bito, because there was one other daughter that needed to be added. There was Dina, and then there was another Bas, which explained the word binosav plural, at the end of the Pasuk, because there was another girl. It was his granddaughter, Yocheven. And we all know that granddaughters sometimes can be considered like children themselves. The Balitosas say that, and that's the idea. So we're learning it out from that extra word, so to speak, Beto. <coughs> Sorry, that the da- there was Dina. And then there was somebody else. The Mascula David says, and it's this is an obvious thing, I don't think we even need Mephorshim for this, it can't be that Yochavr was born beforehand. Because the Pasek says that she was born in Mitzrayim, right? She's born in Mitzrayim, so that's later on, that's not here, but Yochavr was born in Mitzrayim when we talk about Yochevedel. So it can't be that she was born beforehand. She couldn't have been born before they went into it. It can't be that she was born afterward. Because then we wouldn't mention her among the people that went down to Mitzrayim. And therefore, it had to be somewhat in between. She was born right at the gate. And that's the Kiddush, that it wasn't really in Mitzrayim, but not really outside of Mitzrayim. So she's not really counted, but she's counted. All of that is from the Mosque of David. Super interesting. The Ayelas are wonders, and I, you know, I kinda, I'm kind of i sure everybody wondered this themselves. Revan Lebschai, mean, he says, was there a country called Mitzrayim and a city called Mitzrayim? She was no the Benachomos. Where were these walls? The walls were where? There were walls around a big city of Mitzrayim. I I don't know about you, I always pictured Mitzrayim as an open area surrounded by desert. Maybe I'm totally wrong, and maybe Alexandria or wherever it was did have walls. I've never been to Egypt, not planning on going to Egypt, so I have absolutely no idea. But it seems that there were walls, and it's Mitzrayim's walls. Which sounds like the country, I'm sorry, but perhaps there was a real city there that they counted right over there. Was the, the wall a metaphorical wall? Was it, was it referring to something else entirely when it's nolda bena It's as if there were walls there, right? It's very, very strange whether or not, and I can't answer the question. I have absolutely no idea whether it actually surrounded the country or the city itself. What's up? Right, separate entrances. And I'm okay with that also because there could be, I would assume because you're dealing with the Nile Delta which went in all directions, there were many ways to get into the area of Mitzrayim. I would assume that. there would be like 12 highways, 12 passageways that would go through there. I'm okay with that. But yes, 100%. It's the same basic question. Where were these walls and were there walls around the city of Mitzrayim itself? Now, the Yaros in Chelek al-Drush Bays, right toward the beginning, he asks, why did this have to happen in such a way? Were the 70th person the 33rd person in leah's family was born as they were entering the land right when they were coming in that's when that happened so he says the following this is a super interesting answer he said we know there are 70 nations in the world so the number 70 is connected them the reason why there's 70 people going out of it's is connected to 70 nations each nation a different person there should be no more no less than 70 people entering to be connected those 70. There may have been other children, but there should be 70 main nishamos connected the 70 nations of the world. This is super interesting. When they were in Eretz Canaan, there were also 70 because the Shekhinah counted as number 70. The Shekhinah joined Klau Yisrael and the Shekhinah itself was number 70. But when they left Eretz Canaan, the Shekhinah was no longer Shorah. There was no Shekhinah anymore. So somebody had to take that place. But it had to be exactly at a time when the Shekhinah was leaving. The Shekhinah left when they left Eretz Canaan and they came into Eretz Mitzrayim. But there was no Shekhinah when they were in Eretz Mitzrayim. The Shekhinah didn't come with them. So at that moment, they would have been losing 70. They would have had 69 people exactly, which is exactly what it was. The Shechina was number 70 and then when they came into Mitzrayim, they were 69. So a child had to be born exactly at that moment with a special neshama that could represent the Shechina to be that number 70 right there at that moment. So when they reached the borders of Mitzrayim and the Shechina left, at that moment, that's when Yocheved was born. Yocheved was right there to complete that 70. And the Ramami points this out and says that the mother of Moshe Rabbeinu was so great, she was equal to the Shechina, so to speak. She was number 70. No, the Shechina was number 70. Both are right. The Shechina was number 70 until Yocheved took it over. That's why her name is the same letters as Kivodi take Yocheven and turn it around a little bit and it's Kavodi, my nefesh, so to speak, my honor, says the Kodesh Baruch, referring to the Shechina above. The Bas Ayin, he argues that it's only when they entered Egypt, the land of the 70 nations, that they needed 70 people connected. They didn't need it before. So it's not representing the Shechina. You didn't need the Shechina up until that point. But regardless, that idea that's brought by the Ramami Pano and Rabbi and Ibschitz and Yaros Devash is a crazy idea that it had to be specifically no. The Benekomos, not before and not afterward. Yes, um, The border of Mitzrayim doesn't reach all the way to Eretz Israel. So I, I, what else would you call it? What else is in between Eretz Israel and Egypt? Because Edom is too far east. The Pleshtim is too far north. So I think there is a spot where we'd call Canaan next to Mitzrayim. I think there would be a spot that would be like that, or it's no man's land. Border, but then surely some people left Eretz Israel before they even got to the border of Mitzrayim because even them. I don't know. I don't know where the end is if it's no man's land. And that area of the Sinai Peninsula, which I'm assuming you're referring to, is probably considered no man's land or still technically Eretz Yisrael in some way because Eretz Yisrael, biblically is all the way up to Nahar Mitzrayim, the river of Egypt, which would have been the border. So I think that still would count. I think it would still go there. The question is really when did Yitzhak get told when he was trying to go down to Mitzrayim to turn back? When was that? It seems like it would be right around there. Yahweh between the walls, between the border of and It's possible. It's all possible that way, right? The line of the Yarus Debash and the realm of is that the Shekhinah left and Yochaveh was born. But whatever that is, but yes, maybe, maybe that's the walls, so to speak. That's why I said maybe metaphorical walls, me. right? Anything around that would have been that idea. It's possible. It's definitely possible. Now the Ibn Ezra doesn't understand this as, at all. He said the following, he says, why wouldn't the Pusik talk about this? Hold on, Yocheved is born when they came into Mitzrayim. She gave birth to Moshe Rabbeinu and Moshe Rabbeinu was 80 when they left Mitzrayim. They're in Egypt for 210 years. That means that if, again, Moshe Rabbeinu was 80 when they left Mitzrayim and Yochavit was born when they came in, she's 130 years old when she gave birth to Moshe Rabbeinu. How do we not talk about that miracle? How does that miracle not make it into the Chumash? Sarimeinu gave birth at the age of 90 and we go crazy. We go crazy. Sarimeinu was so old. She couldn't believe it. She had absolutely no idea and then we have somebody who's giving birth 40 years later than that. 40 years later than that. At a much later time, those people, by the times of Menu, were closer to living 200 years, 300 years. By the times of this when, this, when this was going on, it was a rarity to live that long. How in the world do we not talk about this concept of 130 years of Yochavid going through? So he says, he asks that question, he says, why not make a big deal out of it? Especially because Aaron was then born at the age of 127 of Yochavid. And Miriam was born at the age of 24 of Yochavid. They were three and six years older than Moshe Rabbeinu. So what in the world is going on here? Why don't we mention about that whatsoever? Right? Considering all those midrashim that talk about how long it's in. And then he goes on, he says the extra person is Yaakov, Avinu. but whatever, regardless, that's another thing the Ibn Ezra goes into. But what in the world is going on here? So the Ibn Ezra says that cannot be. There's no way. It can't be Yochavid. It's got to be Yaakov, Avinu. it's got to be somebody else, but it can't be Yochavid. She couldn't be that old. It's a solid question, right? It's a solid question. The Ramban, is pretty harsh on him. It's pretty harsh, right? And he goes on, he says, lest the Ibn Ezra think that he's smarter than all of the Chachamim of Gemara, because the Gemara says that she was 130 when she gave birth to Moshe Rabbeinu, I will have to answer him. And the Ramban goes on and answers, and we'll get to the Ramban in a second. But the Chavetz Chaim points out that the Ramban, even when screaming at the Ibn Ezra and calling him basically an api chorus for going against the Gemara, uses unbelievable Lashen. He says, Zav roseach yutzak chacham azeh. May boiling hot gold be poured into the throat of this great chacham. Now, you wouldn't say that normally. You'd say like boiling hot Tar. You'd say boiling hot fire should be poured into the throat. Like, how dare you say such a thing? That's the way you'd say it in this type of a case. But it's not what he says. Even though he completely disagreed with what the Ibn Ezra said, and he felt that he was absolutely wrong, he still treated him with crazy amounts of respect. He says this, it's an interesting one, this whole phrase, and he explains it with a great mushal. Listen to this mushal that the Chavetz says. He says, there was once a merchant who sold a bunch of kalem and he was so successful that he was able to make a much bigger store for all of his wares. So what he did was he added to the glass a bunch of precious stones, and he made the glass really, really special stuff. He added on stuff to the store that made it really, really expensive, and he put all these different things. He made an ambiance that when you walked into the store, you felt like, oh, wow, this is a really expensive place. I'm going to spend a lot of money there. That's how the guy ended up doing this, this whole thing. But the big thing was the storefront, right? The storefront had these two huge window panes, these huge pieces of glass, beautiful pieces of glass that were constantly shined, that constantly had these beautiful stones in them that always had the stuff, the wares, right behind this really expensive stuff that he made. I don't know, glassware and whatever it was that he put right in front that would be his display case, so to speak, right there in front. So everybody would be able to look down and that's that. They had chandeliers, they had drapes that were beautiful. They did everything there. But really, this was the ickory. He had those two massive windows right over there. There was another man who lived across the street. Okay, we'll call the guy who owns the rich store, we'll call him Ruvain. The guy across the street, his name was Shimon. Shimon also owned a store. He didn't have that great of stuff, and he didn't make a really great business. And he kept looking over outside of his, you know, drape, the the, the windows that he had, which were all dirty and whatever it was, he would look across and he'd see this man's store, how nice it was and everything. And he was super jealous, super jealous. You know, I also want to have a store like that. I'm really upset. I'm really upset that I can't have a store like that. And he couldn't have that. And business was really, really slow for him. So one day this jealous man was watching out his window. He had nothing else to do. And he sees a very, very wealthy man walk into Ruvain's store He goes into Reuven's store and he goes and he makes a huge order for something, you know, and puts down all the money, gets everything together, tells him what he wants, gets the order together and everything like that. That's that. The very wealthy man puts down his order, gets everything done, right? Gets up to leave, walks out into the street. And there was like a little bit of cement in the street, like a little rock that was standing up, sticking out of nowhere. And the guy wasn't paying attention. The wealthy man wasn't paying attention. He stepped on the rock, tripped, and he tried catching himself and smashed right through one of the windows, smashing the display case, taking down like six or seven of the different glass things that were there, right, knocking everything out. He's bleeding a little bit, and immediately the store owner comes over, and he's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. He gets all his workers together. They staunch the bleeding. They make sure that he's all okay. They lift him up. They help him out. They're just like, oh, are you fine? Are you okay? Don't worry about anything. You don't have to pay for anything. It's the government that's responsible for getting rid of those stones in the street. I can't believe they they kept it there for you to fall. We're so sorry for you. We feel absolutely terrible. What else can we do for you? They get him water. They give him bandages, right? Obviously, the guy gets bandaged up, and he said, thank you so much much, He goes and he goes on his way. Meanwhile, they put up, you know, like a big board, right? You know, random wooden board and they put it up in the old window, right? So that one window is the beautiful window, whatever, with everything. And the other window is now this big board, which stinks, but what can you do, right? There was nothing you can do. Shimon across street sees this whole thing happen and he's sitting there and finally he gets like a huge smile on his face. Like, oh, his beautiful store has just been taken down, right? So now finally I should get a little bit more business, right? And he's sitting there and he's like rubbing his hands together and he's sitting there like, I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't believe this happened to me. It's such great luck that the guy fell into his window, right? The wealthy man fell into his window. Like, oh man, this is absolutely amazing. So he sits and he sees that people are still going into the store. Why? Because there's still another window. The other window still shows the beautiful store. It might be that one part is still disgusting, but that part still looks really, really good. And there's still another display case, and there's a bunch of stuff over there. So people are still walking in, and they're all buying, and Shimon is super upset. He's sitting there, right, and he cannot believe, he cannot believe, right, that such a thing is still going on. So he decides, you know what? I saw what happened when that guy tripped and fell into the window. He said, I'll also trip. I'll just trip over a little rock in the street and we'll see what happens then. Right? He was hoping that that would be the best thing in the world. So he took a little bit of a walk. Walks outside, you know, whistling a little bit as he's going through. He gets near the other window and he pretends to trip on the ground and falls face first into the other window, knocking down the display cakes, knocking down all the glasses and everything and everything is totally destroyed, smashed, everything on the ground all over the place. He's bleeding. Again, he just went through glass and everything. And the people come by, but instead of helping him, the wealthy man, Ruvain, and all of his workers start yelling at Shimon, You got it! What's wrong with you? How dare you? They start kicking him, and start pulling him up, and start grabbing them out. He said, you're going to pay for every little bit of this. Everything that you just broke, broke, you are paying for. You're paying for the window. You're paying for the glass, the display case. You're going to pay for the chandelier that you broke. You're paying for all the glass that you broke. Everything you're going to have to pay for it. And he said, like, I, I, I don't understand. How can this be? The Shimon protested. He said, I don't get it. Yesterday, the exact same thing happened with the wealthy man. He went through that window and the same thing that I just did, right? And you, you took care of him. You blamed the government. You helped them out. You bandaged them up. But me, I sit there and that's what happened. So I looked at him and he's like, "You fool. He was a valued customer. We know he didn't do it on purpose. He fell through and he didn't mean to fall through and he's somebody who's trustworthy. He pays on time. He makes constant orders from us. We know what we have with him. If we get him upset, we're not going to have his business anymore. So we do everything we can to make sure that he's happy. He's satisfied. So he's going to come back to us. We'll make back all the money for the display case and the glass and the window and everything. We'll make that all back in another couple months with this guy on our side. Now that this guy is super happy with us, but you, we've never seen you before in our lives. We have no idea who you are. Shemin, we know that you live across the street. We know you're jealous of us, right? So you, you crash into this, we know you did this on purpose. You don't deserve the benefit of the doubt. We have nothing to do with you, and therefore 100%, you should. we should charge full price. Why in the world would we help you out? That's what Reuven and his men said to him. Says the Chabetz Chaim, The Ibn Ezra was known to be a tzaddik of the highest caliber, a person who worked really hard to understand the Torah, and he learned Torah all day and all night for years and years and years and years with Yiras Hashem and Chachma. There's no question about it. The Ibn Ezra comes with a reputation that precedes him. If once in a while the Ibn Ezra says something that's questionable, that you look at it and you're like, I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense. That's not something that I would tell somebody. That's something that seems a little bit off. Somebody like that, you still treat him with a tremendous amount of honor. He's the wealthy person that fell into the window by accident. He tripped over something for whatever reason, and for that, he gets that covered. But others don't deserve that covered because well, somebody gets up and says some api courses, some garbage. He doesn't have a track record. He doesn't have, he's not a guy who's learned with Chachma and Gira. He's a guy that just got up one day and decided, oh, I'm going to tell you what I want. That guy deserves the same amount of kavod? No. Ibn Ezra gets gold poured down his throat. Everybody else gets burning hot tar down their throats. The Ramban doesn't give a second glance at the Apikorsim or the Kofrim that come up with a vort in the Torah that they think is 100% true but is really absolutely garbage. But the Ibn Ezra, he deserves our respect even though he might be wrong. That's the idea that the Ramban says. Yeah? Isn't that still the one of Mitha, uh, Jumping into a window? No. <laughs> <laughs> Shreifa. Yeah, it still is, but it's burning hot gold. Like the way he's saying it is, I'm going to pour gold down his throat, I'm going to make him realize he's wrong, but it's still gold. That's the idea that, some, that the Chavetz Chaim is saying, that it's still gold. And the briskarov says the Ibn Ezra has two good Edim Naamonim that he's a tzaddik. How do we know he's a tzaddik? We never saw the Ibn Ezra. How do we know? The Rabbeinu Tam said about him, this is what the Rabbeinu Tam said in a, po- a little poem that he made, Eved Lemikne, right i can be kone what they have the, that what avram says The i will bend and bow in front of him that's what the Rabbi tam said about the ibn ezra the rambam says about him any a rambam he says this he said to his son he said the he gerus i'm sorry sorry he rambam he a that he said to his son i command you not to look at any other meforshim other than the ibn ezras he was like Avram Avinu in his spirit, says the Rambam. And he's explained to me many different things. Be careful that you don't ruin your mind by learning anything but our parish and his. We don't have the parish of the Rambam anymore in Chumash. But our parish and his, the Ibn Ezra's parish on Chumash itself. That, those are two good Edim money. You have the Ibn Ezra being praised by the Rabbeinu Tam and the Rambam. There is a famous story that Ibn Ezra was always extremely poor, that he never had any money. So there was one time they tell this story that Ibn Ibn Ezra one time was told, well, one guy wanted to make sure that he had a bunch of money. So he took a bag that had no siman on it whatsoever, put a ton of gold coins in it, and put it right outside of his door. He knew the Ibn Ezra would never accept a gift, right? So he wanted him to find the gold and come in, right? So he put it right before the Ibn Ezra would come home. Like he knew the Ibn Ezra was on his way home. He put it down and then he ran away, right? And he was watching from the other side. As soon as the Ibn Ezra came within 10 feet of his house... All of a sudden, he closed his eyes and started holding onto the wall right next to him and was walking straight until he got to his door. He got to his door. He felt the doorknob, opened up the door, went inside the house, completely missed the money on the ground. So this guy ran up, knocked on the door of the Ebenezer's house. Ezra Ebenezer comes and says, Shalom Aleichem. He says, Rebbe, you didn't see that? There was money right there. And he said, no, I must have missed it, right? But you found it. It's yours. You get to keep it. So the guy said, No, Rebbe, what were you doing? I saw you walking and you were holding onto the wall. Ibn Azar said, I thought to myself, I thought to myself, what would it be like to be blind? So I wanted to appreciate the fact that Hashem gave me eyes. So when I came to my house, I figured I would just use my hands to feel the wall until I came home. So I would appreciate the fact that I have eyes and I can see. The Ibn completely missed it, right? Totally didn't see it. The Ibn Ezra used to say that, like everything he ever went into, everything went bad. For example, if he would have gone into Tachrichin, you know, selling burial shrouds, people would stop dying. That that would be it, right? He wouldn't be able to make any money off everything. He was—it's absolutely funny. But that's the Ibn Ezra. You have ate him the money that he was a tzaddik. So yeah, the Ramban spends his time to disprove the Ibn Ezra. Other people don't deserve that. Now, for the Ramban's answer, what's his answer? It's true. Yocheved giving birth at an advanced age at 130 is an absolute palagadol and a nace nister. She was the actual daughter of Levi not a granddaughter not a great-granddaughter and it says that clearly in Parshish Pinchas Asher Yolda Osa Levi. Osa is the wife of Levi Asher Yolda Osa Levi on the way down so it's that and in addition there's a posig in Be'era that says that Yocheved was the aunt of Amram and Amram married his aunt which is Osir but that was before the Torah etc so she must have been somewhere near the age of 130 which is very old to have a baby. So the Ramban says, 100%, this is an ace-nister. There's no question whatsoever. Maybe... Levi gave birth to Yocheved a little bit later in life, right? And this Gemara is not true of Nolda ben when he was close to a 100 years old in Mitzrayim, because he was 43 when he came down. Levi was 43. So maybe he gave birth to her another 70 years later. But that would make her significantly younger when she gave birth to Moshe. But still you'd have a problem. That means that Levi gave birth at the age of a 100, which is miraculous, and Miriam gave birth at the age of 73, which is still miraculous. So let's go with 130, says the Ramban. I think that's a little bit easier. Let's go with one miracle instead of two. He then says, right, I'm going to say something clear that's truth out the entire Torah, right? That only miracles that are prophesied about beforehand by a Navi or a Malach are mentioned in the Torah. Miracles that happen on their own to help a great tzaddik or to destroy an evil person are not mentioned in the Torah or by any of the Nevi'im. It had to be prophesied about first. It could be that there were crazy miracles that happened. But if it wasn't said first by a Moshe Rabbeinu, by a Yoshua, by a Malach, By an of one of the avos. If it wasn't said beforehand, then that's it. The whole world consists of nisim nistarim, hidden miracles that we don't understand. Why should the psukim point out all of them? Why? That's the whole world. Right? Yes, there are Nisim Gluyim. That's a different story. The Nisim Gluyim are straight out in the Torah. But Nisim Nistarim that are not prophesied about do not make it into the Torah. And he explains that's the reason why the Kivshana Eish isn't in the Torah. Because nobody prophesied about it before him. The fact that Avraminu was able to survive a massive fire, which is a huge miracle, wasn't prophesied about. Nobody said it was going to happen. Avraminu wasn't assured it was going to happen. Therefore it's not put in the Torah itself. He says the following, he goes on, he says, why wouldn't, in theory, someone who's mechal shabbos or bull in erva? Why wouldn't he be struck dead immediately by lightning? Why isn't he, right, immediately destroyed? Why are there such things as mamzerim in the world? Why wouldn't that Baruch Hu make sure that no mamzerim are born? That if you sin, you don't get to have a child. Why wouldn't that Baruch Hu have made it that way? And the answer is, is that we would see everything as natural and not part of a Kaddish Baruch's plan. We have to have a world where everything is a nesnister, where it's a complete nesnister. And there are some complete proofs of this. He says the idea is behind the clear proofs of this. There were around 370 years from when Bnei Israel entered Eretz Israel and the birth of Dov and Amelech. 370 years between. They entered Eretz Israel. Dov and was born, around that amount of time. Somehow, there were only four generations up until that point, if we take this to be literal. Salmon, Boaz, Oved, and Yeshai. Salmon came into Eretz Yisrael and then there was Oved, Boaz, Oved, and Yishai. How in the world did that get to Dov and Melech? In 370 years, each one must have lived 120 years before they gave birth to somebody or one of them was super duper old. And that's a possibility. But either way, the point is, is that that seemed to change when David Amalek was born, and yet there's no mention of any of this in the Torah itself. Nowhere did the Nevi'im say that there's a crazy thing that all these people lived super long. There are hints that Boaz lived a very, very long time. There are hints that Ishai lived a very long time. In certain girso's of Rashi, you might see that he lived 70 years before he gave birth to David. And in other places it says 300 years before he gave birth to David. Obviously, that seems to be impossible to us, but again, the years are really, really messed up. In fact, ev- even by Aframino, it would seem to be a pella that he sired a child at the age of 100, as obviously the Psukim seem to say. But it doesn't even mention a thing about the fact that he has six more children 37 years later. He gets married to Keturah, he has six more kids. The Torah makes a big deal, 100 years old. How could it be that Avram had a child? And he's like, ben Shana yolid. 100 years old, he's 140. And he has a whole troop of kids after that. Six more kids, if not for daughters. We don't even know how many daughters he might have had after that. How in the world does the Pusik not say a thing about that? Just ignores it completely. And by the way, he also had six more kids. Yes, I know he's old, but he had six more kids. That's crazy. Again, that's a nescher. The only reason why it doesn't say anything is because there was no prophecy beforehand. There was a prophecy that Hashem said to Avram, you will have children before Yishmael was born. There's a prophecy from the Malach, you will have a child before Yitzchak is born. But there's nothing about the six sons of Keturah. So we don't mention it, even though it's miraculous. It's super obvious. Super obvious, right? We don't mention the fact that, and the idea, that Menu no longer had Orach Kanashim, and yet somehow it came back. That's the idea that we're trying to get into. So it could be the Yochavet was able to have children at that older age, because the Kaddish Baruch wanted the Goel to come from her. She wasn't ready p- for perfection until the age of 124. So at 124, she gave birth to one child, Miriam. 127, she gave birth to another child, Aaron. At 130, she gave birth to a third child, Moshe Abenu. Why not mention that? That's crazy. That's a crazy nace. Because it wasn't prophesied about beforehand. The time wasn't ripe for her to have children beforehand, so they waited until that time. The lo yi pole ma Hashem davor, the Ramban concludes. Don't think that anything is too crazy from a Karish Baruch. Hu, all of this was part of a grand plan for that to happen. Now Sternbuch says that this Ramban is absolutely perfect for our generation. Everything is through the of Hashem, even those things that we don't understand. If we try explaining his ways around and saying, like, what do you mean? We understand the concept of gravity, we understand how electricity works. We also understand how cell phones, cell phones work, although we don't really. right? We understand how planes work. All those things are obvious. Does yeah? so it make any sense that you're talking to somebody? The sound of light is much quicker than the, so- the speed of sound. The speed of sound and speed of light, right? You're talking to somebody across the globe. How are you able to have a conversation without any gaps in it? How does the speed of sound go through? Because it's trans- transmitted as radio waves travel at the speed of light. Radio waves are very, very quick. That is 100% correct. But how in the world do we get that through sound? Sound through the speed of light. Sound off. doesn't go the speed of light, right? So it should go slower. Sound light. How is that possible? You have a diaphragm that moves. A- but that's amazing, isn't it? Yes. So yes, you're explaining it in a way that could be. But there is. Yeah, I, I think we looked this up before, Dave, right? We've looked this up. The yeah, the plane thing we have, right? We're, no one really knows why, the why. I think it's the exact same thing by cell phones as well, right? It's... There are some crazy things that are happening. I would get into something. But regardless, it's the idea behind it that he's testing. It's almost as if we should never try explaining the ways by saying that maybe there's something like this or that going on. We should believe that everything is Yad Hashem and that he leads the world with Hashkach Pratis and especially his nation itself. We should absolutely thank him for everything we have, right? And not prove from those chasadim that he gives us that we are experiencing something more than his absolute control. That it shouldn't be that we just look at it that way. Remordechai Pragmansky once was asked about Medina Sisal, about the country of Israel itself, why it seems not to have been prophesied by anyone in any Navi. It doesn't say that we're going to have the land of Israel right before the times of Mashiach, and although you might be able to hint to it, right, what's happening right now. Right, especially with us against whatever whatever we're fighting against. But within the last let's say seventy five years of the Medina of Eretz Yisrael, where is that prophesied to? Why did Yacheskul not say anything about it? Why did Yeshia not say anything about it? Hoshea, Zachariah? Right? Where was everybody? How is nobody talking about this concept that will have the land of Eretz Israel? It'll be run by people that aren't from, but there will be a ton of from things going on there. Why is that not part of Nevuah? He said like this, and he said the following. He said, Nevi'im and Chazal talk about what's called Ikvasad Mashiach, the end of days before Mashiach comes. But they don't bring up this. He said, this period before Mashiach is not a tekufa, he says, of puranos, of punishment, or a de geula, and a beginning of a gula, which they say, I mean, there are those that say within the prayer from the Medina, tsmichas gula senu, that it should be the beginning. He says, no, it's a tekufa of nisionos. It's a test. Ani, saying cannot be predicted beforehand because you can't say how it's going to go. The test is to see what Klai Yisrael does with their ability to be in Eretz Yisrael and keep Mitzvah's Torah, and their faith or not. Are they going to grow from it or are they not going to grow from it? If people can come back and they do that, that is, by definition, a test. To not know about it beforehand, it can't be prophesied about. According to this idea, all of what we're going through right now is a preparation I hope it's not this way, for Chedle Mashiach. We haven't even gotten into Chedle Mashiach yet, which are the birth pangs that lead to Mashiach coming, and we're not eating in, which means we need a tremendous Marasiat, Eishmai, and Tefillah to stand strong until Mashiach reveals to himself to us, here of Yamenu. That is an unbelievably scary thought, and I hope it's dead wrong. I really hope it's dead wrong because that sounds absolutely horrific that the Holocaust wasn't even, it was still a Nisayon to get to the other Nisayon to get to the eventual Chavle Mashiach that Chazal, many Amoraim got up and said, Yesi v'loach mineh, let Mashiach come, I just don't want to be there when it happens. That's scary as anything okay there are other things the Gurari has a couple answers to the Ebenezer's question why it has to happen that way it is a little bit interesting right I, I, just very quickly if you wanted to go through it really quickly first this generation was filled with miracles regarding childbirth like they were giving birth to six people at a time right six kids at a time there were kids sprouting out out of the ground kids were being thrown into the, the river and coming right back up there were miracles happening all the time one after the other to everybody right over there right all being fed by Malachim So because of that, another miracle that had to do with childbirth, a woman giving birth at the age of 130, that's why we're not mentioning it. Because everything back then was miraculous when it came to childbirth. And another reason why is because the Avos lived lives of miracles, so we speak about them at length, right? But these people, Amram and Yocheved, had this happen to them, but they weren't lives of miracles, so we don't go into it whatsoever. The Eneleahu says that once this happened to Sarah and Avram, it was able to continue for their children afterwards. It was easier to tap into that miracle. Going to be able to do. That's an interesting answer in and of itself. But either way, either way, regardless, that's that. There are other answers who the 33rd person was. Rebchiyah Brabam Boba Vasar Kupchov says there was a twin sister born with Dina. It's hinted to by the extra S over here and that's S-Dina S dina Bito. So there was a twin sister, she's number 33. It's rejected by the Gemara over there, right? But regardless, right, it is another answer. It's another answer, even if it's rejected by the Gemara and Gimel. Other mitrashim hint that Yaakov, you know, I mentioned that before, was a 33rd person. The Ibn Ezra says it as well, but it doesn't fit the Pasek. He's not one of the children of Leah, so it makes no sense to say that he's number 33. Pir-Kiri says it was the Shekhinah, and that's dealing with what we set up above, based on the Yaros, Devash, and the and Kano, which is an amazing idea behind it. But either way, that's Pirkei Rebbe Eliezer. Tor says Dina had a baby boy from Shem, and that was counted as number 33. The problem is, is that we know Dina had a girl from Shem. Shrem impregnated her with Osnas, the wife of Yosef. But I guess if you say that Osnas is actually the daughter of Potiphar, then Dina might have had another baby, because it's not Osnas, and that baby would have been a baby boy who's unnamed because it's Shem's kid. So he's number 33 in that side of the family from Leah, but not mentioned because it's Shem's kid. Yeah. Could it be referred to Yosef because of the swap? For sure, no, because then you wouldn't count Dina. If but, you count, but it says Dina it says Oh, the daughter, twin? Daughter of Yaakov. No, you say it's a swap. You know what I'm saying? Like, it would be swapped completely. You'd switch it's one for the other. Yes. I can't now, say that. I, there's no nobody that says that. It's a cute idea, but like, there's nobody that says that. Right, and that's that. Torah Shleimov says it's referring to Osnas because when we count the people in Mitzrayim, it only counts Yosef, Ephraim, and Menashe. It doesn't count Yosef's wife, which is Osnas, who's already in Mitzrayim. So that would be interesting. You have 32 people that went down to Mitzrayim, but 33 people that were actually... Children of Leah, right? She just didn't go down to Mitzrayim over here. And Rechiel Mechol Feinstein tries to add all those together. It's possible that that's exactly what it is. Yocheved is the person, or Osnas is the person, and they're number thirty-three all together. That brings sixty-six people that went down to Mitzrayim. But there were seventy people in Mitzrayim because you count Yocheved, who's no the Benechomos, or you have Osnas, who's already in Mitzrayim herself. That's probably, in my mind, the best possibilities to go through. But yeah, of those were I what? They were born in Padan Aram. No, though that would only be referring to the Shvatim. Not everybody was born in Ram. These were the bon- like you'd have to start with the Pesukim and say Ela b'nei Lea or Yehudel Yaakov Aram. and then the Asdina b'ito, as well as Kol Nefesh That includes the grandchildren altogether, thirty-three. So you're right for sure. Not it would only be seven people who were born in Padan Aram. The other, how many is that? Thirty-three minus seven. So altogether, right? The other. uh twenty six would have been people who were born somewhere else. Right? That's what you'd have to say. But either way, if at least someone answers it, my favorite answer by far is the Yaros Devash based on Yocheved, but by far that mushroom of the Chavitz Chaim is just absolutely unbelievable. We'll stop with that guys. Have a great job.